0: This is Health First Talks, where we share information to help the healthcare community meet the daily challenges of medical emergency readiness, patient safety, and compliance.
1: Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining the Health First Podcast. We're so excited to bring Dr. Scott Cohen and Dr. Fiona Collins with us today, talking about Safeguarding the Air We Breathe Part One In this podcast, we'll be talking about SARS-CoV-2, is airborne, and some recent findings that we're all learning and uncovering. We'll also be talking about dose-related exposure, what's happening in schools today, and we'll also be looking at monitoring and ventilation. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Scott Cohen. He is a practicing physician at Bassett Healthcare Network and Dr. Fiona Collins, who is an infection prevention expert. Fiona, hand it off to you. Thank you, Grace. Well, as we all
0: know at this point, after a very long year, SARS-CoV-2 is airborne. It's unequivocal. We also know that there are extremely small particles, less than five microns that are very easily inhaled into the depths of the lungs. We still don't exactly know the infectious dose, but we do know it's highly infective. And we've also learned more about that with recent findings. Scott, I know you uh, read something recently about air quality uh, that were some findings by an engineer.
2: Yeah, thanks Fiona. Um, You know, it's very interesting. I think there's kind of a general thought out there that you know, you inhale one viral particle and you get infected. And that's not true with SARS-CoV-2, nor is it true with the flu or any other virus for that matter. There's a dose related exposure that needs to happen in order to, you know, get infected. And that's why we say wear masks. Masks don't eliminate the virus, but they reduce your dose and thus decrease the risk of, of getting infection. You know, some researchers have estimated that it takes about 300 particles uh, to become infected. Typically it's about 2000 to 3000 for other viruses. So if you think about it, it's really uh, a highly infectious uh, disease. It's basically 10 times more infectious than some other uh, diseases. Um, you know, and I think honestly, when we think about this it really just helps us figure out what do we need to do to decrease the risk of getting exposed. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you Fiona, What what are we doing You know, in schools right now, kind of the decreased exposure, and, you know, how are things changing?
0: The schools have learned a lot in the last few months. Um, They've found masks to be effective, which is not surprising. Uh, Social distancing, so they've been keeping the students apart. They've done some hybrid learning, a lot of online learning. Uh, But really, the masks and the distancing have been found to be very effective. The daily temperature checks and the uh, disinfection, deep cleaning of surfaces, as they would refer to to it as has been uh, not found to be as effective as the masking, the distancing. So it plays a role, uh, but not quite as important.
2: Um,
0: but as we know, the CDC guidelines were just updated last week, and uh, they've reduced from six feet to three feet the distancing for K-12 students. And that's based on the latest scientific findings. Um, as we know, Scott, for the other students, the younger students below K-12, they're still recommending six feet distancing unless Mm -hmm. they can really split them out into cohorts. Mm -hmm. But but I think some of the other information that we found uh, on the super spreading um, and super spreading events is actually also very interesting.
2: Absolutely. You know, and it's really interesting too, because, you know, Fiona, you already said it's pretty obvious now and Increasing bodies of evidence keep showing that coronavirus is airborne. At first, we thought it was large droplets, and six feet were adequate. You know now, I think we know that you know Corona, SARS-CoV-2, you know, can travel well beyond six feet in aerosols. You know, it can be from people talking, shouting, singing, just breathing. You know, you talked about the, these super spreader events, and some of the super spreader events have been you know like church services, people are singing it's really, you know, it's interesting. We wouldn't have thought this, you know, two or three years ago. And one of the things we think about for indoor air spaces is, you know, how do we monitor these things? How do we, you know, you can't look around, okay, you can see dust in the air when sun shines through a window, things like that. But how do you monitor if there are infectious aerosols in the air? And honestly, you can't, you know, there are some devices out that you can, you know, test um, airborne particles, but, you know, they're not practical. They take Um, a fair amount of resources to use, and they, they just are not practical for everyday use. They may be practical for a large organization, you know, to test once or twice. But there are some things that I think we're starting to think about as proxies, and they seem to bear out, you know, doing some research with environmental engineers at The Focus. And one of them is, you know, outdoor CO2 levels are about, you know, 415 parts per million That's mainly due to fossil fuels where they've gone up over a few years. But interesting, we know that indoor uh, carbon dioxide can be 800, 1,000, 1,200 parts per million because we exhale carbon dioxide. So think about it. If you have really good ventilation, by that I mean air exchange with outside air, you'll see that CO2 levels are low. And I, I will admit, we don't know what the optimal indoor CO2 level is, unfortunately but I'm sure we can surmise that as low as possible close to outdoor air would be best. Um, Is that 800, 900, 500, we we just don't know. But what we do know is if you monitor those CO2 levels and increase ventilation in those areas where it's of highest amounts, that it does decrease, or at least we believe it decreases the risk uh, of transmission. Um, You know, and there, there are other findings with, you know, what happens in the wintertime, do particles change because of humidity? Um, You know, there are other things that, that may happen during the winter and when humidity drops and the temperature drops, it may be a bit more difficult to ventilate spaces. Um, But we do know that it probably does have some effect uh, to uh, improve that. So uh, Fiona, I don't know your thoughts on that, or is there anything else we can do potentially? To, um, yeah,
0: it, it's really logical when we think about it. If you have uh, air exchanges, then you're also exchanging the air that's already in the room that people have been breathing, on, breathing out. Uh, they've been talking, they've been speaking, they've been maybe laughing <laughs> and sneezing. Um, so if you're changing the air out more often, you've got better ventilation. You're obviously taking some of the, the, the virus and other particles with the air as it's changed out. So from that perspective, it's logical. Um, so certainly we need good ventilation. And that was one of the other things that find with the schools is that uh, using portable air cleaners, monitoring and good ventilation uh, would help. So there is a general recommendation to have good ventilation. Um, I, if we think about some of the indoor events and the super spreaders that you were talking about, Scott, there, there's also a gradation on, well, which people are in the room? Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got groups that are, Obviously, if they're uninfected or largely uninfected or a very low viral dose, that's quite different to uh, a larger group of infected people proportional to the whole group and depending on the viral load. And at the extreme end, that would be the most severe situation, you've got elderly people with a high viral load. So there really are gradations, but it's become clear that uh, good ventilation is is definitely one of the uh, key strategies going forward in trying to control the air and in fact, cleaning the
2: air as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're, we're going to, I think speak in our next podcast about, you know, how we're going to, or, or what we can do potentially with indoor air quality in addition to, you know, increasing air exchange with outside air, IE reducing CO2 levels as a proxy for better air exchange? But I think we're also going to really get into how, you know, some of the theories about, you know, doses. So why why do some people get really severe COVID disease, and some people don't. Why do, uh, and there's a lot of theories behind that, but there there are some theories out there related to the the dose of exposure, you know, and how clusters are affected by that and how some clusters can have more severe uh, disease within a cluster, and it's really interesting. I can't wait to talk about that next time. Uh, And then also, you know, I think Fiona, you said uh, we were gonna talk about um, uh, air purification as well, is that correct?
0: Yes, and I'll I'll touch on that at the end again, just very briefly. Um, I I think the other interesting thing is um, the study that we were discussing earlier, where they found that really the initial viral load that the person acquired from the source uh, was uh, suggested to be predictive of the uh, likelihood of disease and how severe it would be. Um, So I think that again ties into Uh, not only ventilation, but also in other ways, ensuring good air quality. So I I know we were going to discuss um, monitoring ventilation and uh, we were talking about uh, monitors earlier, Scott.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I I think there's a couple different, the big monitors that I'm interested in are, you know, CO2 level monitors. And those, there are some out there, they're fairly inexpensive. Uh, those have been out for years because they're used in a lot of different areas, but I think there are things that you can use on a regular basis. I don't, I don't want to say every day who's going to go around, you know, measuring CO2 areas, CO2 in areas, but if you can get like say your normal number of people in a room and a normal temperature day with your typical amount of um, ventilation, meaning the typical number of windows open, the heat set at a certain amount, you know, the airflow going with circulators at what is normal, And you measure it and you say, wow, it's much higher than all the other rooms in the building. Well, you could say, all right, well, this room needs some remediation. And again, I really can't say that this number of CO2 is better than that number, but we can say that lower is better and higher is worse. So we can say that, you know, if you have any outlier rooms, those are the rooms I would focus on because you know, if some of your rooms are six, seven, eight hundred parts per million and one of them is 1500. You work on the 1500 room and just get everybody more towards the mean i wish we could say yeah shoot for 800 or shoot for 900 or whatever it is but we really can't say that um but i can't say gyms restaurants bars schools you know others uh other things that are you know trying to stay open or or safeguard our, our public and kids are really trying to uh you know move forward with these sort of technologies uh in order to help
0: right and the carbon dioxide monitors that have uh, been developed they're They're pretty easy, they're straightforward to use. It's not a complicated test. There isn't a delay in timing. Um, If you look at some other tests that are being performed, it's a two, three day delay. Um, You don't really want a two, three delay with ventilation, but when you get fairly immediate results and adjust your ventilation, um, it's a great move. It's proactive um, and it it really does indicate when you need to improve ventilation.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I guess uh, you know, as we wrap it up here, you know, with this, um, you know, with this uh, podcast, uh, we really look forward to talking about some of the further technologies. These are coming out; uh, these are out right now. The CO two technologies. I think when we start to record some of the podcasts in the next few days, um, there'll be other technologies that are coming out quickly because it just seems it's something every day, and we explore things, and we'll try to help out the audience by you know pre exploring these things. Uh, you know, we're not selling here, we're really trying to, you know, um, explore technologies that can help people um, open their schools, open their restaurants and either offices and things like that. But we'll try to, you know, find what technologies are out there to help. um, And, you know, try to vet at least not necessarily the individual ones, but what are what exists out there, how they work, and do they have some evidence to help? Some may not have evidence, but still may be helpful. Uh, We're in that kind of mode right now where things are changing so quickly. Uh, it's going to be difficult to uh, know everything about everything in this in this space, right?
0: And it's actually a really positive thing because it means we're learning more, we're finding out more, we're learning more how to combat it, in addition to vaccination and other methods that have already been used. Yep. And with that, uh, in part two, we're going to discuss air purifiers, as well as air disinfection techniques. Um, we'll look forward to seeing you again in our next podcast. Thank you.